Phaedo is an account of the last discussion Socrates engaged in with his friends and followers before his execution. Like all of Plato's work, Phaedo is multifaceted and layered. The text contains versions of some of Plato's most famous arguments, specifically those pertaining to the nature and immortality of the soul. For those of you interested in following along, I'm reading from the GMA Group translation included in Plato Complete Works. There's a link to the Amazon listing of this text in the description. You'll also find a link to the complete digital text of Benjamin Jowett's translation. It will be a little bit different from the text I'm reading, but it's not so different that you can't follow along. Let's get started. Were you with Socrates yourself, Phaedo, on the day when he drank the poison in prison? Or did someone else tell you about it? I was there myself, Echocrates. What are the things he said before he died? And how did he die? I should be glad to hear this. Hardly anyone from Phileas visits Athens nowadays. Nor has any stranger come from Athens for some time who could give us a clear account of what happened, except that he drank the poison and died, but nothing more. Did you not even hear how the trial went? Yes, someone did tell us about that, and we wondered that he seems to have died a long time after the trial took place. Why was that, Phaedo? That was by chance, Echocrates, the day before the trial, as it happened, the prow of the ship that the Athenians sent to Delos had been crowned with garlands. What ship is that? It is the ship in which the Athenians say Theseus once sailed to Crete, taking with him the two lots of seven victims. He saved them and was himself saved. They vowed then to Apollo, so the story goes, that if they were saved, they would send a mission to Delos every year, and from that time to this, they send such an annual mission up to the god. They have a law to keep the city pure while it lasts, and no execution may take place once the mission has begun, until the ship has made its journey to Delos and returned to Athens. And this can sometimes take a long time if the winds delay it. The mission begins when the priest of Apollo crowns the prow of the ship, and this happened, as they say, the day before Socrates' trial. That is why Socrates was in prison a long time between this trial and his execution. What about his actual death, Phaedo? What did he say? What did he do? Who of his friends were with him? Or did the authorities not allow them to be present, and he died with no friends present? By no means, some were present, in fact, a good many. Please be good enough to tell us all that occurred as fully as possible, unless you have some pressing business. I have the time, and I will try to tell you the whole story, for nothing gives me more pleasure than to call Socrates to mind, whether talking about him myself or listening to someone else do so. Your hearers will surely be like you in this, Phaedo, so do try to tell us every detail as exactly as you can. I certainly found being there an astonishing experience. Although I was witnessing the death of one who was my friend, I had no feeling of pity, for the man appeared happy both in manner and words, as he died nobly and without fear. Echocrates, so that it struck me that even in going down to the underworld, he was going with the god's blessing, and that he would fare well when he got there, if anyone ever does. That is why I had no feeling of pity, such as would seem natural in my sorrow, nor indeed of pleasure, as we engaged in philosophical discussion as we were accustomed to do. For our arguments were of that sort. But I had a strange feeling, an unaccustomed mixture of pleasure and pain, 
at the same time as I reflected that he was just about to die. All of us present were affected in much the same way, sometimes laughing, then weeping, especially one of us, Apollodorus. You know the man and his ways. Of course I do. He was quite overcome, but I was myself disturbed, and so were the others. Who, Phaedo? Who were those present? Among the people, among the local people there, among the local people there was Apollodorus, whom I mentioned, Critobulus and his father, also Hermogenes, Epigenes, Iskenes, and Antisthenes, Tessippus of Pinea was there, Menexius, and some others. Plato, I believe, was ill. Were there some strangers present? Yes, Simeus from Thebes, with Cabes, and Phidonides, and from Megira, Euclides, and Terpsion. What about Aristippus and Cleombrotus? Cleombrotus, were they there? No, they were said to be in Aegina. Was there anyone else? I think these were about all. Well then, what do you say the conversation was about? I will try to tell you everything from the beginning. On the previous day also, both the others and I used to visit Socrates. We foregathered at daybreak at the court where the trial took place, for it was close to the prison, and each day we used to wait around, talking until the prison should open, for it did not open early. When it opened, we used to go in to Socrates and spend most of the day with him. On this day we gathered rather early, because when we left the prison on the previous evening, we were informed that the ship from Delos had arrived, and so we told each other to come to the usual place as early as possible. When we arrived, the gatekeeper, who used to answer our knock, came out and told us to wait and not go in until he told us to. The eleven, he said, are freeing Socrates from his bonds and telling him how his death will take place today. After a short time, he came and told us to go in. We found Socrates recently released from his chains, and Xanthippe, you know her, sitting by him, holding their baby. When she saw us, she cried out and said the sort of thing that women usually say. Socrates, this is the last time your friends will talk to you and you to them. Socrates looked at Crito. Crito, he said, let someone take her home. And some of Crito's people let her, led her away, lamenting and beating her breast. Socrates sat up on the bed, bent his leg and rubbed it with his hand. And as he rubbed, he said, what a strange thing that which men call pleasure seemed to be and how astonishing the relation it has with what is thought to be the opposite, namely pain. A man cannot have both at the same time, yet if he pursues and catches the one, he is almost always bound to catch the other also, like two creatures with one head. I think that if Aesop had noted this, he would have composed a fable that a god wished to reconcile their opposition, but could not do so. So he joined their two heads together, and therefore when a man has the one, the other two, the other follows later. This seems to be happening to me. My bonds caused pain in my legs, and now pleasure seems to follow. be following. Cabes intervened and said, By Zeus, yes, Socrates, 
You did well to remind me. Evenus asked me the day before yesterday, as others had done before, what introduced you to write poetry? What induced you to write poetry after you came to prison? You who had never composed any poetry before, putting the fables of Aesop into verse and composing the hymn to Apollo. If it is of any concern to you that I should have an answer to give to Evanus when he repeats his question, as I know he will, tell me what to say to him. Tell him the truth, Cabes, he said, that I did not do this with the idea of, riv of rivaling him or his poems, for I knew that would not be easy. But I tried to find out the meaning of certain dreams and to satisfy my conscience in case it was this kind of art they were frequently bidding me to practice. The dreams were something like this. The same dream often came to me in the past, now in one shape, now in another, but saying the same thing. Socrates, it said, practice and cultivate the arts. In the past, I imagined that it was instructing and advising me to do what I was doing such as those who encourage runners in a race, that the dream was thus bidding me the very thing I was doing, namely to practice the art of philosophy, this being the highest kind of art, and I was doing that. But now, after my trial took place and the festival of the god was preventing my execution, I thought that, in case my dream was bidding me to practice this popular art, I should not disobey it, but compose poetry. I thought it safer not to leave here until I had satisfied by conscious, by writing poems in obedience to the dream. So I first wrote in honor of the God of the present festival. After that, I realized that a poet, if he is to be a poet, must compose fables, not arguments. Being no teller of fables myself, I took the stories I knew and had at hand, the fables of Aesop, and I versified the, one, the first ones I came across. Tell this to Evanus, Cabes, wish him well and bid him farewell, and tell him, if he is wise, to follow me as soon as possible. I'm leaving today, it seems, as the Athenians so ordered it. Said Simeus, what kind of advice is this you are giving to Evanus, Socrates? You have met him many times, and from my observation, he is not at all likely to follow it willingly. How so, said he, is Evanus not a philosopher? I think so, Simeus said. Even Evanus will be willing, like every man who partakes worthily of philosophy. Yet perhaps he will not take his own life, for that, they say, is not right. As he said this, Socrates put his feet on the ground and remained in this position during the rest of the conversation. Then Cabes asked, How do you mean, Socrates, that it is not right to do oneself violence, and yet that the philosopher will be willing to follow one who is dying? Come now, Cabes. Come now, Cabes. Have you and Simeus, who keep company with Phileas, not heard su about such things? Nothing definite, Socrates. Indeed, I too speak about this from hearsay. But I do not mind telling you what I but I do not mind telling you what I have heard. For it is perhaps most appropriate for one who is about to depart yonder to tell and examine tales about what we believe that journey to be like. What else could one do in the time we have until sunset? But whatever is the reason, Socrates, for people to say that it is not right to kill oneself. 
As to your question just now, I have heard Phileas say this when staying in Thebes, and I have also heard it from others, but I have never heard anyone give a clear account of the matter. Well, he said, we must do our best, and you may yet hear one, and it may well astonish you if this subject, alone of all things, is simple, and yet it is never, as with everything else, better at certain times and for certain people to die than to live. And if this is so, you may well find it astonishing that those for whom it is better to die are wrong to help themselves, and that they must wait for someone else to benefit them. And Cabes, lapsing into his own dialect, laughed quietly and said, Zeus knows it is. Indeed, said Socrates, it does seem unreasonable when put like that, but perhaps there is reason to it. There is the explanation that is put in the language of the mysteries, that we men are in a kind of prison, and that one must not free oneself or run away. That seems to me an impressive doctrine, and one not easy to understand fully. However, Cabes, this seems to me well expressed, that the gods are our guardians, and that men are one of their possessions. Or do you not think so? I do, said Cabes. And would you not be angry if one of your possessions killed itself when you had not given any sign that you wished it to die? And if you had any punishment you can inflict, you would inflict it? Certainly, he said. Perhaps, then, put in this way, it is not unreasonable that one should not kill oneself before a god had indicated some necessity to do so, like the necessity put na now put upon us. That seems likely, said Cabes. As for what you were saying, that philosophers should be willing and ready to die, that seems strange, Socrates. If what we said just now is reasonable, namely that a god is our protector and that we are his possessions, it is not logical that the wisest of men should not resent leaving this service in which they are governed by the best of masters, the gods. For a wise man cannot believe that he will look after himself better when he is free. A foolish man might easily think so, that he must escape from his master. He would not reflect that one must not escape from a good master, but stay with him as long as possible, because it would be foolish to escape. But the sensible man would want always to remain with one better than himself. So Socrates, the opposite of what was said before is likely to be true. The wise would resent dying, whereas the foolish would rejoice at it. I thought that when Socrates heard this, he was pleased by Cabe's argumentation. Glancing at us, he said, Cabe's is always on the track of some arguments. He is certainly not willing to be at once convinced by what one says. Said Simeus, but actually, Socrates, I think myself that Cabe's has a point now. Why should truly wise men want to avoid the service of masters better than themselves and leave them easily? And I think Cabe's is aiming his argument at you because you are bearing leaving us so lightly and leaving those good masters, as you say yourself, the gods. You are both justified in what you say, and I think you mean that I must make a defense against this, as if I were in court. You certainly must, said Simeus. Come then, he said. Let me try to make my defense to you more convincing than it was to the jury. 
For Simeus and Cabes, I should be wrong not to resent dying if I did not believe that I should go first to other wise and good gods, and then to men who have died and are better than men are here. Be assured that, as it goes, I expect to join the company of good men. This last I would not altogether insist on, but if I insist on anything at all in these matters, it is that I shall come to gods who are very good masters. That is why I am not so resentful, because I have good hope that some future awaits men after death, as we have been told for years, a much better future for the good than for the wicked. Well now, Socrates, said Simeus, do you intend to keep this belief to yourself as you leave us, or would you share it with us? I certainly think it would be a blessing for us too, and at the same time it would be your defense if you convince us what you say. I will try, he said, but first, let us see what it is that Crito here has, I think, been wanting to say for quite a while. What else, Socrates, said Crito, but what the men who is to give you the poison has been telling me for some time, that I should warn you to talk as little as possible. People get heated when they talk, he says, and one should not be heated when taking the poison, so those as those who do must sometimes drink it two or three times. Socrates replied, Take no notice of him. Only let him be prepared to administer it twice, or, if necessary, three times. I was rather sure you would say that, Crito said, but he has been bothering me for some time. Let him be, he said. I want to make my argument before you, my judges, as to why I think that a man who has truly spent his life in philosophy is probably right to be of good cheer in the face of death and to be very hopeful that after death he will attain the greatest blessing yonder. I will try to tell you, Simeus and Cabes, how this may be so. I am afraid that other people do not realize that the one aim of those who practice philosophy in the proper manner is to practice for dying and death. Now, if this is true, then resent it when they... Now, if this is true, if would be... Now, if this is true, it would be strange indeed if they were eager for this all their lives and then resent it when what they have wanted and practiced for a long time comes upon them. Simeus laughed and said, By Zeus, Socrates, you made me laugh, though I was in no laughing mood just now. I think that the majority on hearing this will think that it describes the philosophers very well, and our people in Thebes would thoroughly agree that philosophers are nearly dead and that the majority of men is well aware that they deserve to be. And they would be telling the truth, Simeus, except for their being aware. They are not aware of the way true philosophers are nearly dead, nor of the way they deserve to be, nor the sort of death they deserve. But never mind them, he said. Let us talk among ourselves. Do we believe that there is such a thing as death? Certainly, said Simeus. Is it anything else than the separation of the soul from the body? Do we believe that death is this, namely that the body comes to be separated by itself apart from the soul, and the soul comes to be separated by itself apart from the body? Is death anything else than that? 
No, that is what it is, he said. Consider then, my good sir, whether you share my opinion, for this will lead us to a better knowledge of what we are investigating. Do you think it is the part of the philosopher to be concerned with such so-called pleasures as those of food and drink? By no means. What about the pleasures of sex? Not at all. What of the other pleasures concerned with the service of the body? Do you think such a man prizes them greatly? The acquisition of distinguished clothes and shoes and other bodily ornaments? Do you think he values these or despises them, except insofar as one cannot do without them? I think the true philosopher despises them. Do you not think, he said, that in general such a man's concern is not with the body, but that, as far as he can, he turns away from the body towards the soul? I do. So in the first place, such things show clearly that the philosopher, more than other men, frees the soul from association with the body as much as possible. Apparently. A man who finds no pleasure in such things and has no part in them is thought by the majority not to deserve to live and to be close to death. The man, that is, who does not care for the pleasures of the body. What you, what you say is certainly true. Then what about the actual acquiring of knowledge? Is the body an obstacle when one associates with it in the search for knowledge? I mean, for example, do men find any truth or sight or hearing? Or are not even the poets forever telling us that we do not see or hear anything accurately? And surely, if those two physical senses are not clear or precise, our other senses can hardly be accurate, as they are all inferior to these. Do you not think so? I certainly do, he said. When, then, he asked, does the soul grasp the truth? For whenever it attempts to examine anything with the body, it is clearly deceived by it. True. Is it not in reasoning, if anywhere, that any reality becomes clear to the soul? Yes. And indeed the soul reasons best when none of these senses troubles it, neither hearing, nor sight, nor pain, nor pleasure, but when it is most by itself, taking leave of the body, and as far as possible, having no contact or association with it in its search for reality. That is so. And it is then that the soul of the philosopher most disdains the body, flees from it, and seeks to be by itself. It appears so. What about the following, Simeus? Do we say that there is such a thing as the just itself or not? We do say so by Zeus. And the beautiful? And the good? Of course. And have you ever seen any of those things with your eyes? In no way, he said. Or have you ever grasped them with any of your bodily senses? I am speaking of all the things such as size, health, strength, and in a word, the reality of all other things, that which each of them essentially is. Is what is most true in them contemplated through the body, or is this the position? Whoever, us, whoever of us prepares himself best and most accurately to grasp that thing itself which he is investigating will come closest to the knowledge of it. Obviously. Then he will do this most perfectly, 
who approaches the object with thought alone, without associating any sight with his thought, or dragging in any sense perception with his reasoning, but who, using pure thought alone, tries to track down each reality pure and by itself, freeing himself as far as possible from eyes and ears, and in a word, from the whole body, because the body confuses the soul and does not allow it to acquire truth and wisdom whenever it is associated with it. Will not that man reach reality, Simeus, if anyone does? What you say, said Simeus, is indeed true. All these things will necessarily make the true philosophers believe and say to each other something like this. There is likely to be something such as a path to guide us out of our confusion. Because as long as we have a body and our soul is fused with such an evil, we shall never adequately obtain what we desire, which we affirm to be the truth. The body keeps us busy in a thousand ways because of its need for nurture. Moreover, if certain disease befalls it, they impede our search for the truth. It fills us with wants, desires, fears, all sorts of illusions, and much nonsense, so that, as it is said, in truth and in fact, no thought of any kind ever comes to us from the body. Only the body and its desires cause war, civil discord, and battles, for all wars are due to the desire to acquire wealth, and it is the body and the care of it which we are enslaved, which compel us to acquire wealth, and all this makes us too busy to practice philosophy. Worst of all, if we do get some respite from it and turn to some investigation, everywhere in our investigations, the body is present and makes our confusion and fear so that it prevents us from seeing the truth. It really has been shown to us that if we are ever to have pure knowledge, we must escape from the body and observe things in themselves with the soul by itself. It seems likely that we shall, only then, when we are dead, attain that which we desire and of which we claim to be lovers, namely wisdom, as our argument shows, not while we live, for it is impossible to attain any pure knowledge with the body. Then one of two things is true. Either we can never attain knowledge, or we can do so after death. Then, and not before, the soul is by itself apart from the body. While we live, we shall be closest to knowledge if we refrain as much as possible from association with the body and do not join with it more than we must if we are not infected with its nature by purifying ourselves from it until the God himself frees us. In this way, we shall escape the contamination of the body's folly. We shall be likely to be in the company of people of the same kind, and by our own efforts, we shall know all that is pure, which is presumably the truth, for it is not permitted to the impure to attain the pure. Such are the things, Simeus, that all those who love learning in the proper manner must say to one another and believe. Or do you not think so? I certainly do, Socrates. And if this is true, my friend, said Socrates, there is good hope that on arriving where I am going, if anywhere, I shall acquire what has been our chief preoccupation in our past life, so that the journey that is now ordered for me is full of good hope, 
as it is also for any other man who believes that his mind has been pre prepared and, as it were, purified. It certainly is, said Simeus. And does purification not turn out to be what we mentioned in our argument some time ago, namely, to separate the soul as far as possible from the body and accustom it to gather itself and collect itself out of every part of the body and to dwell by itself as far as it can both now and in the future, freed, as it were, from the bonds of the body? Certainly, he said. And that freedom and separation of the soul from the body is called death. That is altogether so. It is only those who practice philosophy in the right way, we say, who always most want to free the soul. And this release and separation of the soul from the body is a preoccupation of the philosophers. So it appears. Therefore, as I said at the beginning, it would be ridiculous for a man to train himself in life to live in a state as close to death as possible and then to resent it when it comes. Ridiculous, of course. In fact, Simeus, he said, those who practice philosophy in the right way are in training for dying and they fear death least of all men. Consider it from the point of view. If they are altogether estranged from the body and desire to have their soul by itself, would it not be quite absurd for them to be afraid and resentful when this happens? If they did not gladly set out for a place where, on arrival, they may hope, hope to attain that for which they had yearned during their lifetime, that is, wisdom, and where they would be rid of the presence of that from which they are estranged. Many men at the death of their lovers, wives, or sons were willing to go to the underworld, driven by the hope of seeing there those whose company they longed, and being with them. Will then a true lover of wisdom, who has a similar hope and knows that he will never find it to any extent except in Hades, be resentful of dying and not gladly undertake the journey thither? One must surely think so, my friend, if he is a true philosopher, for he is firmly convinced that he will not find pure knowledge anywhere except there. And if this is so, then, as I said just now, would it not be highly unreasonable for such a man to fear death? It certainly would, by Zeus, he said. Then you have sufficient indication, he said, that any man whom you see resenting death was not a lover of wisdom, but a lover of the body, and also a lover of wealth and of honors, either or both. It is certainly as you say, and Simeus, he said, does not want, does not what is called courage belong especially to men of this disposition? Most certainly. And the quality of moderation, which even the majority call by that name, that is, not to get swept off one's feet by one's passions, but to treat them with disdain and orderliness, is this not suited only to those who most of all despise the body and live the life of philosophy? Necessarily so, he said. If you are willing to reflect on the courage and moderation of other people, you will find them strange. In what way, Socrates? You know that they all consider death a great evil. Definitely, he said. And the brave among them face death when they do or fear of greater evils. That is so. Therefore, it is fear and terror that make all men brave, except the philosophers. 
Yet it is illogical to be brave through fear and cowardice. It certainly is. What of the moderate among them? Is their experience not similar? Is it license of all kind that makes them moderate? We say this is impossible, yet their experience of this unsophisticated moderation turns out to be similar. They fear to be deprived of other pleasures which they desire. So they keep away from some pleasures because they are overcome by others. Now to be mastered by pleasure is what they call license. And what happens to them is that they master certain pleasures because they are mastered by others. This is like what we mentioned just now, that in some way it is a kind of license that has made them moderate. That seems likely. My good Simeus, I fear this is not the right exchange to attain virtue. To exchange pleasures for pleasures, pains for pains, and fears for fears, the greater for the less, like coins. But that the only valid currency for which all these things should be exchanged is wisdom. With this we have real courage and moderation and justice, and in a word, true virtue, with wisdom, whether pleasure and fears and all such things be present or absent. Exchange for one another without wisdom, such virtue is only an illusory appearance of virtue. It is in fact fit for slaves without soundness or truth, whereas in truth, moderation and courage and justice are a purging away of all such things, and wisdom itself is a kind of cleansing or purification. It is likely that those who establish the mystic rites for us were not inferior persons, but were speaking in riddles long ago when they said that whoever arrives in the underworld uninitiated and unsanctified will wallow in the mire, whereas he who arrives there purified and initiated will dwell with the gods. There are indeed, as these concerned with the mysteries say, many who carry the Thrissius, but the Bacchants are few. These later are, in my opinion, no other than those who have practiced philosophy in the right way. I have in my life left nothing undone in order to be counted among these as far as possible, as I have been eager to be in every way. Whether my eagerness was right and we accomplished anything, we shall, I think, know for certain in a short time, God willing, on arriving yonder. This is my defense, Simeus and Cabes, that I will likely to be right, that I am likely to be right to leave you and my masters here without resentment or complaint, believing that there, as here, I shall find good masters and good friends. If my defense is more convincing to you than to the Athenian jury, it will be well. Thank you for listening to the Practice of Death podcast. If you're enjoying these readings of classical works of philosophy, please subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is meant to be a supplement to my The Practice of Death YouTube channel, where I unpack and discuss in depth the arguments and ideas found in the text to which you're listening right now. Check it out and join in in the discussion. You'll find a link to the YouTube channel in the description.